0: My name Colby, and I serve as a teaching elder here. Um, as many of you know, that attend regularly, I talk about this. Uh, I did not grow up in church. Um, I had grandparents who loved the Lord. Every once in a while, would allow me to go to church with them and experience um, church in, the, in their context. But my dad uh, was in the drug scene, and my mother was a bartender. And so I kind of grew up in the world and had much more of a pagan experience being raised by government schools. But my grandparents had taught me to read from the Bible. So my uh, grammar book or fun with Dick and Jane was the scriptures. So multiple times before I got out of middle school, I had read through the King Jimmy, right? Which was the only Bible at that time that you went through. So I love Shakespeare and Elizabethan English because as a kid, it was just like pummeled into me. What that made inside of me uh, was a problem for what we're going to do next week. That is, I think it's this Wednesday is our sign up uh, for Awana. And there's going to be punk kids like me that come into this building and they're just going to be problems. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you think that your kid can't be in Awana because they're too big of a problem, they might end up right here, Right? And so I, I just know that God um, used some people uh, in my life at a time where I was just an absolute rebellious punk in church to draw me in. And so I have always, from youth group kids to whoever, the the worst kids in the group, I just got a heart for them, or I always have a heart for the hundreds of kids in our town that we're not reaching, because I was that kid in a broken home or a broken place. And when I came into church, I had all kinds of questions, but they weren't entry-level questions. They were questions that I would come into a Sunday school or a small group or something like that, and I would know that our leader has not read Habakkuk. Like, I know it, because you just... Right now, we're trying to get volunteers, and we're trying to get you in there with the cubbies, and if they start posing questions about Habakkuk, you're out. Right? But I was coming in there just with questions, dishonest questions, trying to stump them. Then I start to grow up, and life begins to give me some questions that I couldn't answer. And I come into this Christian thing, and I started to realize that there is all kinds of answers to this question of life that I could answer completely wrong and devastate my own existence right and i start going down pathways with drugs and alcohol i start to define sexuality however it was most pleasurable for me and i started to realize that not every use of sexuality is blessed it's just real and you've got these questions and here's the thing when i started following jesus it was not just a silver bullet That every question I had ever had in life was automatically answered. Matter of fact, following Jesus raised questions I had not even been asking. It actually created more questions for me. And I would even say this. It was a beautiful thing. Because some of the questions I was asking were not as good of the questions that Jesus raised in me. Jesus drew me in. By challenging me with better questions than what I was asking. And he became the answer to those. And I'm not saying that everything that I've ever had to deal with intellectually in Christianity has just got a neat bow on it. But once Jesus became the answer to the deepest life questions that I was chasing after, like a lot of the kind of goofy stuff, trivial stuff, about what is Abraham's shoe size, began to fade. Do you hear what I'm saying? I learned French at one time. And in French, the word for knowledge is science. The word for science is just the word for knowledge. When they say you know something, it's merely saying that you, you know the science of it. But I had come from a place to understand that science is like some sort of rationality over here and my spirituality is over here but when you come to the Bible, they hold them up next to each other. And so here's the thing. I think that a lot of us might have questions as we come into here about dealing with the resurrection or our own spiritual life, the own, our own pathway. But I, I think the Bible is going to say, we're going to bring the deepest core of longings of your spiritual life and what is most logical, truthful, and reasonable. And it's, and it's, it's just going to be beautiful right there together. It's not going to be separate. And so I don't know what your questions are or things, but I want to I wanna ask some questions today about the resurrection as we look at this passage. And here's what I believe. I believe that what the Bible is saying happened has the greatest explanatory power for telling us what happened to Jesus after he died. And I know your crazy uncle Googled some stuff, and so they, they should definitely be believed all the time but I want to put the crazy uncle aside and the conspiracy theories and the YouTube comments aside, and let's just look at what God's Word says about life, and then we'll we'll kind of move from there. Sound good? Cool. Let's pray, ask God for His help, and then we're going to dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter Your courts with thanksgiving and Your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of You because You are the author of life, and the life in You has conquered death in the grave. And so, Father, as we look at this account of how you raised Jesus from the dead, would you allow us to put our American bias, our 21st century preconceptions, and the thoughts of arrogance that make us think that we know everything, would you allow us to put that to the side and give us eyes to see what you did here for us, What you offer us in the life of Jesus that's eternal and that goes on forever. And so for our friends that are gathered here that maybe don't know the gospel, Father, would you send the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin and draw them to Jesus in ways that I will never be able to do. And for my brothers and sisters that are gathered, God, would you return us to the tomb so that we can look in and see that Jesus is just not there anymore that we might treasure Him and know Him and live for Him, and that that would not only be today, but that would go on forever. And so, Holy Spirit, this is your space. Do your thing. We pray in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said, Amen. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we've come here at the end, and we've looked at the crucifixion of Jesus a few weeks ago. We looked at the burial of Jesus uh, last week. And some things that we got from the burial is that the end is not the end. Right? Like the cru- the crucifixion at this point for the disciples looks like it's a like game over, but the end is not the end. And out of the worst news ever of the death of Jesus is going to come the best news ever, and that is that Jesus has risen from the grave. All right? And so we we talked about this that Jesus has been crucified to death on Friday. This is the day of preparation that goes directly before the Sabbath. That day of preparation is the meal prep day. And we kind of said this. When you have a major holiday, like Passover, that this is overlapping, like Thanksgiving, you got to start cooking two weeks in advance. And so this is their preparation day for the Sabbath. Enter into this story was this cat named Joseph of Arimathea, who was born... And from the same place that the prophet Samuel was from. Joseph, we learn from the text and from the gospels, was a member of the Sanhedrin. The kangaroo court that voted to put Jesus to death. And that he was a disciple of Jesus, yet secretly, because he didn't want to be identified with him. Furthermore, we learn from the other gospel writers that our boy Nicodemus is there. You remember John chapter 3, Nicodemus. Right, So we got Joseph, Joe, and Nick, and they're together, two people who had been secret disciples, yet something about the cross compels them to come out of the closet and to be public for Jesus. And we just talked about how unbelievably small the window of opportunity that they have to fulfill prophecy that they probably didn't even know about small window of opportunity from the time that Jesus dies that afternoon to getting him into a, not just any grave, but a rich man's grave. Remember Isaiah chapter 53 prophesied that Jesus would be buried with the rich. Joseph gives his own tomb, which no one had ever been lived in before. Or lived in. Uh, That's true as well. Which is this whole other thing of that there's tombs that people reused. They would put them in there. They didn't embalm in those days. Nicodemus is said in the scripture to have donated 75 pounds of spices for the body of Jesus. They would kind of plaster it on there to slow the decaying process. 75 pounds. You've got fifth graders that aren't 75 pounds. Right? And that it says in the Bible that financially Joseph of Arimathea donates the linen shroud. For those that believe in the Shroud of Turin, this is where that comes from. And that when Jesus is raised, one of the gospel accounts said that he folded the face cloth, which we said is compelling evidence of why your kids should do their laundry. Right? So we got these, like they got the shroud is donated by somebody. Just be honest, in the church, when we talk about the Sanhedrin, those are those religious bigots that killed Jesus. And when we talk about Pharisees like Nicodemus, we talk about those people are the bad ones. Those are bad religious people. And yet Jesus gets a hold of these two cats. All 12 of his boys are gone. Running like cowards. Now he's got. Of all people on all the earth. To care and take him down from the cross. Joseph, of Arimathea, Nicodemus. That's unbelievable. That the secret disciples. Are going to be used. To fulfill scripture. Right? That. Jesus could have had even his bones broken. They used an iron mallet to break the legs. But the account from the Roman centurion is that Jesus was already dead. So they speared him underneath the rib ribcage rib cage, into the heart sac, such that it bled blood and water. Unbeknownst to them, that was a fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. That they, he would, they would look upon him that they pierced. There is small windows... But see, they're moving at the speed of God's sovereignty. Like God is at work here in characters knowingly or unknowingly. Do you realize how few people in all of this time period had the kind of political connections to go to Pilate and even ask for the body? Virtually nobody. Joseph is one of those though. Who could go to Pilate and say, I want the body of Jesus and be able to take it down. I mean, just not everybody has Trump and Obama on their cell phone, right? You just can't text them every day. He's got political connections that other, frankly, us in this room wouldn't have had. He's able to get the body of Jesus, to pull him down, to put him in not just any tomb. Jesus could have ended up on the trash heap in the Gehenna where, where criminals were usually thrown, but he didn't. He ended up in a rich man's tomb exactly the way that it was supposed to happen in Isaiah 53. Jesus is buried, put into the ground, and now we have Joseph and Nick out in the open as disciples of Jesus. And we said this as kind of our parting thought last week either your secrecy, Will destroy your discipleship, or your discipleship will destroy your secrecy. Either your secrecy will destroy your discipleship, or your discipleship will destroy your secrecy. You cannot remain both. And now, Joseph of Arimathea is as risky and dangerous as it is, he is identified with Jesus in his death. You know, what we, you know where we use that language in church? Baptism. Our baptism is an identification with the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Christ. We, we come to the, to the baptismal waters and we say, we are taking the worst version of you, you in sin and you in your flesh, we're burying you, that the new version, the resurrected version, might live forever it's a gospel picture every time we baptize someone and we show outwardly what god has done in burying a version of them and raising a new creation in their hearts it's awesome so we come now to chapter 16 and the resurrection there are certain things i will not be able to get into this week that we'll we'll tackle next week but i want to bring up the slides if you got them and I want to get into what is the gravity of what we're talking about today, right? Because we can come to church sometimes, and we can just kind of have cute stories about trivial things, or we can even sometimes appropriately talk about secondary things. Today is not one of those days. Today is a central tenet of Christianity. Without the resurrection, listen to me, you are not a Christian, and I am not a Christian. So I want to get the weight of it from the Bible. Alright, so go to the next slide. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you ever have somebody ask you what is the main message of Christianity, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I would even argue every one of us this week, get a friend, a relative, a coworker, ask them out to coffee for a gospel appointment, say, hey, can we get coffee sometime, and let me share with you what is the central message of Christianity. Not what you see on TV. Everything else, I want to share what the main message is. And take them right here to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's how critical this is. Look at it. Now, I would remind you brothers, this is Paul, writing the church at Corinth, of the gospel. That word means good news. That's our message as Christians. I preach to you. So this is the message that all over the world, Christians everywhere are preaching. That's how um, Catholic or universal this message is. Which you received, which you now stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So your salvation is connected to this gospel message. Verse 3, I deliver to you of first importance. This is not secondary, so let me put it in context. Some of us would disagree because of our religious backgrounds or preferences about dancing in the church. Some of us would be very pro-dancing because you like the line step and your feet are appropriately left and right. Some of you have two left feet. You would be so opposed to dancing anytime in the church, right? And we could go down the list of public school, private school, um, homeschool. We can go down the list about drinking alcohol. We could talk about tons of secondary issues. This is not that. We should have those conversations. They have their place. This is saying first importance. First importance. And a lot of times the world wants to take us to task about things in Christianity that are peripheral. Because they don't want us to get to the heart of the issue of the gospel. That is first importance to us to communicate to them. Are you tracking? Good. First importance. That what I also received... He didn't cook this up. He received the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, we talked about that last week. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. Notice how the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. It's anticipated. We say this all the time. The Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed. The New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed. It's all about what Jesus was doing in accordance with the scriptures. But note, if you just have Jesus on the cross dying for sin and you don't have the resurrection, you don't have gospel. That's, 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 that's where we're at. That's the weightiness of what we're talking about. And that he appeared to Cephas. That's another word for Peter. And then to the twelfth. And that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now if you think they're just hallucinating, I know that you have never done drugs before. Because if you ever do psychedelic drugs and multiple people in a room do psychedelic drugs, nobody ever has the same trip. Somebody's dreaming about Pokemon and the other one's about fixing a go-kart with their neighbor. All right, So this is not mass hallucination. This is Jesus, they are saying, rose from the grave and appeared to more to multiple people in multiple settings, and at one time, there was 500 people gathered, and Jesus appeared to all of them. The root evidence of the resurrection is that they could go, and Paul's writing this saying, look, at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's like, you could get on your cell phone and call them. Like, you want evidence for the resurrection? It is rooted in eyewitnesses That saw him after the resurrection. That's the root of your faith. It's not fancy. It's not mysticism. It's not guesswork. It's facts. There was a historical fact that people saw. Now you cannot believe those people. Or you can't. But at the root of Christianity is the fact that people saw him. Tons of people go to the next next slide then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles right last of all as to one untimely born he appeared also to me for i am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because i persecuted the church of god what took somebody from persecuting the church to preaching the gospel that makes the church it was the resurrection But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whatever you are currently doing in your own strength, if you will turn to God and come to receive grace, grace will cause you to do more than you could ever do in your flesh. That's a side note. Whether then it was I or they, so that we preached and you believed. Go to the next one. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been named. And if Christ has not been raised, then Christ has been raised, but if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified. This is the language of testifying in court under uh, penalty. Of fraud. We testified that God. That he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised. Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised. Then your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. They're not buried. You don't have new life. Verse 18. Then those who have all fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only. We are all To be most pitied. Go to the next slide. But. Praise God. But. In fact. Christ has been raised from the dead. And the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death. By man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. So also in Christ all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who believe, who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Y'all know that Christ has taken over the earth, right? That's what he's about. For he must reign until the he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy... To be destroyed is death. That's, that's amazing. It's also unbelievably weighty. So, m- back to Mark chapter 16. As a context, note, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all, gonna, each going to give us unique features or details or descriptions uh, about the resurrection. And amongst all of them... Um, Mark is the most limited, hurried, and scarce in details. Almost all the others give more details. This shouldn't surprise us that have been walking through the Gospel of Mark for like the last 20 years here at this church, um, because Mark has always done this. He's always kind of running to the next point and keeping it incredibly action-packed. But I want to take from his unique perspective, because each of the four Gospel accounts is like eyewitnesses to a car wreck who are standing on different sides. Each one of them is going to choose particular details to describe it, right? And the wreck may look differently from each perspective, yet all of them are going to give a unified picture of what happened historically. So ours is the shortest. Verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, that would be a word that we would describe as Saturday. But again, they are not sunrise to sundown when they count days. They think of like sundown to sundown. They're on a lunar calendar, okay? So that's important to know. Sabbath was passed. So we're now into um, what we would call Sunday. Now, Hebrew, the Hebrew people didn't keep words for days of the week like we do, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They didn't do that. They used numbers and they counted from the Sabbath. So this would have been after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, or what you could say after a full week would be the eighth day. Seven days, Sabbath is the end, and the first day of the week or the start of another week. This is kind of important because it says something about what the church does with this. Do you know that historically the church never met for its main gathering on Friday? We could have. Jesus was crucified on Friday. Why didn't we meet on Friday? Why do we meet on Sunday? Now, that's not just an argument from church history. Inside of the Bible, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 7, and Revelation 1 10, they begin to meet on Sunday. The church inside the Bible began to meet on Sunday, and they called it, you've heard this before if you've been in a Baptist church, the Lord's Day. Right? Like gray haired deacons did not come up with calling Sunday the Lord's Day. That's from the Bible, that's in Revelation. They were on the Lord's day. I saw a vision, John says in Revelation. What are they describing? The the, the resurrection became so central, even more than the cross. And I know we wear crosses because empty caves just doesn't have the same flavor. You know what I'm saying? But the point is, the pinnacle of Christianity was the resurrection, not the crucifixion. And they began to meet on Sundays because it had... had, The resurrection was the centerpiece. You know what a centerpiece is, right? Like, anybody got your fall decorations out, ladies? Is is it too early? Some of you already decorated for Halloween, right? It's like the first nippy morning you get and pumpkins are just right in the center of the table. That's the centerpiece. It's like this is the main point. The resurrection is the capstone, not the epilogue. It's the point, the promise. It's not an afterthought. Like, even think about this. As the eighth day, after the day of rest, it's this idea that Christians saw, not only did Jesus get raised on Sunday, but it was like the eighth day, as though there's a new creation that started. That seven days is gone. It's like a new week. It's a new day. Furthermore, circumcision was on which day? The eighth. It's this idea that God is... Giving new hearts to his people for a new creation. Circumcised of the heart, not of the flesh. Now, who arrives there? Sabbath was passed, Sunday. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices. Now, we learn in 1547 that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he's laid. So they see Joseph and Nick do their thing, and they see where, where the tomb is and where they lay him. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices. So a couple things. We've got to talk about these women. Mary Magdalene, the scripture says, Jesus delivered from seven different evil spirits uh, when he delivered her and she was saved. The Mary, mother of James, Mary of Joseph, there's controversy about this. Some people believe this is actually Jesus' mother because Jesus has a brother named James and a brother named Joseph who were not believers until after the resurrection. Could be, but those are such common names we don't know for sure. Salome, which I love because when we went to Guatemala, the first woman I've ever met named Salome is in Guatemala. And they, it's a common um, female name throughout Christianity ever since this. Do you know who she is? She's James and John's mother. She's the wife of Zebedee. She's the mother of thunder. Right? So you got the sons of thunder, but nobody wants to talk about their mom. That's, that's their mama. And here's the other thing about these women. What are they doing? They're going to the tomb to anoint Jesus. Which is curious because I thought Nicodemus did 75 pounds of spices. But, men, if you've ever unloaded the dishwasher for your wife, and then she came in right after you, or loaded it, and came in right after you and said, Well, you did it well, but you didn't do it right come in. Now, likely what they're doing is just what we do at funerals. Not other people buy flowers at funerals. It doesn't mean we don't buy flowers, right? A lot of times it's a way that we say goodbye in our own way, and they're coming to the tomb to anoint. Now, this creates all kinds of problems. The first problem is, is in the first century, especially among pagans, they saw the testimony of women equivalent to slaves and criminals. Now, this isn't the same in scripture. Because the scripture saw women could buy and sell property in Proverbs 31... ...had an unbelievable affirmation of women in scripture. But sinful man looked down upon women as verifiable testimony. Let me give you an early uh, account of what this meant. In the early church, the early church wrote about the women testifying to seeing Jesus raised from the dead. Pagan Romans wrote back, one of which is Celsius. When he wrote back to attack Christianity... He wrote, now, listen, modern Colorado women, just bear with me. This is not me saying this. This is a dead Roman, all right? Do not email me. How Celsius said, how can anyone expect any rational man to listen to the testimony of an hysterical female, end quote, right? You're like, you just put that in your notes, save that for later, all right? Here's what his argument was. I do not respect the testimony of females the same way that I do men. And you're trying to reach me with this eyewitness account of the resurrection from females. Do you realize the fact that if we were making this story up, if they were writing that story in the first century, why would they use women? It makes no sense to use women. If you were making this up, and this is mythology, you would have never chose women as the first witnesses to the resurrection. It was, it would, as Celsius points out, it makes a weakness in the first few centuries. But what was a weakness to the witness then is actually a strength for us now, isn't it? Because now we have people saying, well, that's just a made up story. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you're making the story up, you ain't using women. Weakness for them, strength for us. Because from apologetics, explain the fact that why are women the first witnesses if you're making it up? Here's the way it is. Because they were the first witnesses. They recorded that it was women because it was women. Right? What has the most explanatory power for the women being the first witnesses? Do do you notice that in this account of Mark, women were witnesses to the crucifixion in 1540, the burial in 1547, and the empty tomb in 1605. The best explanation was that they were there. So let me take a side note. Nobody has a better view of women than God. Their creator knows them better than any gender studies professor or feminist. He is the inventor of femininity. It's his idea. So all the times that you hijack it and try to compare them to men, God compares them to what he intended for them to be in Christ Jesus. And he's going to arrive at a better definition of women than any scholar in America. So-called scholar in America. Christ loves women. God loves them. And you can see that because he died on the cross for women died for them. And and let's see this here. They're going to have a role in that day just as they do now in the mission of God. No woman in this church gets to check out of the mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth based on their gender. Because if God is going to use them to herald the gospel and to proclaim the empty tomb, God's going to use women in this church to do that. Right? Right? No excuses, ladies. Amen? Now look at what happens. And very early on the first day of the week, now they're in the mountains like us, so they probably, we understand that probably they're leaving from multiple destinations. Some probably left before, while it was still dark, and arriving at different times. First day of the week, the sun had risen. They went to the tomb. Again, they know where the tomb is because of verse 47 of chapter 15. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Now, this is at a time when women didn't do crossfit, all right? And so the stone is large. And here's their question. Who's going to roll the stone? It's strongman, large, governator, Arnold Schwarzenegger-level stone. And how are we going to roll it? I love that the women go anyways. Impractical. I'm not even going to think out how to get to the stone. I'm going to get there and then figure it out. I love that. They, note here, they lack manpower. So here's the question. Where's all the men? Where's all the men? Hiding? Cowering? Here's the base observation. Not showing up. This is tons of families... That they look around their family and men are not spiritually leading their families. You can go to tons of church here in Colorado and we probably have one of the highest percentages of male to female ratio of any church you'll find here in Colorado. Ronnie, where are the men? Listen, ladies, if you have a man who is in your home who is at least taking a swing At being the spiritual leader of your household, you got a unicorn. Love that unicorn. Right? We are committed in this church to reaching men, discipling men, and challenging men to show up. There's a place in the kingdom of God for manpower. Where are they at? I don't know, but they got to show up and build the kingdom. And thank God for so many churches that have women in the absence of men abdicating their roles of leadership who have stepped up when men have stepped out. Praise God. Praise God for moms and grandmas who have stepped in when men have abdicated their responsibility from God. So here's a side note, ladies. God did for them what men failed to do. God did for them in moving the stone what men failed to do. If you're a woman of God in here and God has called you to something that you don't know how it's going to get done, it's too big for you, go anyways and let God provide the muscle. Go anyways. Let God provide it. Now, this gets into a thing that's uh, notably missing from Mark's account. He just doesn't want to emphasize it. He's focusing on other things. But I want want to kind of pull it in. And that is the guards. In Matthew chapter 27, um, this is in the slide, um, 62 through 66. I love this. The guards' account is that when the angel shows up, it knocks them out. Like the guards fall like dead men. And it just terrifies the women, which I love. There's just that tolerance of pain thing that women have. It knocks the men out, but they're just scared. All right? And in Matthew chapter 27... The the account of, listen to the enemies of Jesus talking about Jesus' resurrection. Okay, so the next day, that is the day of preparation. We're going back to Friday. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. So this is after Joseph and Matthias takes the body. It's on Friday. And they said, sir, we remember that that imposter, speaking of Jesus, when he was still alive, said, and they're quoting him here. Note this. The enemies could quote Jesus' main message about his death and resurrection. Quote, after three days, I will rise. Did the disciples remember that little quote? The late, I mean, we we pump up the ladies, but the ladies aren't believing he's risen from the dead. They're going to anoint a dead body. There's nobody in Jesus' entourage that believed this, but his enemies did. At least enough to know that they needed to secure the tomb. Verse 64, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the end of the third day. Least his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. The greatest fighting force on the earth. The greatest police on the earth. You have a Contingent of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. And they went and made the tomb secure by um, sealing the stone and setting a guard in Roman data. And again, we've already talked about Pilate and how you can go to Israel now, and there are stones with Pilate's name etched in it. This is not mythology, this is history. Go up into Matthew and look at these two accounts. This is where, just two counts, where Jesus predicted his resurrection. Which probably that they drew from these teachings, to um, instigate the sealing of the tomb. Matthew sixteen twenty one. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. It's unbelievable. Mark eight thirty one. Even in the book that we're in, and he began to teach them that the Son of God, Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Jesus did not whisper this in a corner. He preached it from housetops, such that his enemies knew it to the point that they wanted to secure the tomb with guards. What do you do with that? It says that angels came, and in their appearance, in Matthew's account, that... The guards fell like dead men. So what we call, again, knocked out. They dropped. Now, some of us here have read these accounts or heard skeptics say different accounts have different numbers of angels. And I want to address that really quick. Even here in Mark, it focuses on one angel that looked like a young man, bedazzled, right? One account, like in Matthew, it talks about that their appearance was like lightning and their clothes were whiter than anybody could ever bleach them. A lot of us have a trouble with angels because our concept of angels comes from our great auntie who has little precious moment angels. It's like a baby with a diaper and they're just doing lots of works with harps. But the biblical picture of an angel is closer like in Isaiah chapter 6 of an F-16 fighter jet who flies around the throne of heaven and when a man sees them, they wet themselves. So if your biblical concept of an angel is not terrifying, uh, then you're not talking about what the Bible is saying. Because the Bible says they're terrifying to us. Like they mess us up. Like it's so terrifying that oftentimes it's hard for us to get the message from them. And it says that there is multiple numbers of angels. This isn't hard to understand from logic. If I say that me and Mike, if I tell my wife, me and Mike went to the store, okay? And we happen to have taken our kids, but I didn't tell my wife that. I just said me and Mike went to the store and I had, you know, always have kids with me, all right? It's just what happens. If I later see Austin and I say, Hey, earlier today I took my kids to the store. Is that a contradiction? No. I just included different information. If I see my mother later that day and I say, Me, Mike, and the kids all went to the store, that is also the same story. I'm just highlighting different information. It becomes a contradiction when I say to my wife, Only me and Mike went to the store. Or I say, only me and my kids went to the store when I talked to Austin. Does that make sense? There's a difference between a contradiction and just highlighting different information. You want a great illustration of this? Have a teenager. Right? They'll tell you six different stories. Just different information (laughs) included each time. So what they're doing is each author reserves the right logically to describe details for mark he's talking about one that's standing on the right side in a particular position that's not to say that that's the only angel it's just the one that he's referencing does that make sense authors reserve this right furthermore this is not a contradiction but just different highlights look in verse six and seven and he said to them the angel do not be alarmed by the way why do angels have to say do not be alarmed Unless you're going to be alarmed, all right. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was. Now you ain't got to be an English major to know that word "was" is a past tense verb. Here's what they got: was crucified, he has risen. Now I don't want to. I don't want to parse Greek while we're here. This is kind of a. a it's not a wrong translation. It's just a less helpful. He has risen. the The, the word here for for ra- raised is in the passive. The actual best translation, in my opinion, is he has been raised. Because it's the Father who has raised the Son through the Holy Spirit. I don't think this is wrong. I just think there's a better way to say this from the Greek. In the passive, Jesus has been raised. He is not here. See, this is an interesting word here, see the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples, and Peter. Don't you love that? Of all the disciples, my bipolar brother Peter, he needs extra little... Make sure you look Peter in the face. What he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him just as you've been told. Here's what the invitation from the angels is. Come and see and then go and tell. This is the mission of the church. Come and see that Jesus has conquered the grave and then go and tell. Come and see that your view of Jesus is outdated. He's listen, Ricky Bobby, he's not a six-pound, seven-ounce baby anymore. Listen, Roman Catholics, he's not on the cross. Like he's not. And he's not perpetually on the cross in communion. He's not a dying man on the cross. He is a risen Lord. He's a King of kings. And Lord of Lords. And if when we come into this worship service, we don't see Him that way, we don't interact with Him that way, we have an outdated version of Jesus. Because our Jesus has conquered the grave. They didn't open the tomb so Jesus could get out, they opened it so you could come in and look, so you could see. Now, let me do some apologetics here. Because this is the crutch of the issue, when they have the empty tomb report, it notes that people want to believe anything else than what happens right here. You know how I know? Because Tom Hanks made millions doing Da Vinci Code. Right? They'll take documents hundreds of years later by non-Christians, proven false in the Gospel of Thomas, and they will come to that and say, no, 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 Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Do you know why that stuff sells billions of dollars? And why the History Channel every Easter is going to come up with some other explanation? Because man does not want to believe this. We're looking for anything else. Anything. Now, but let's, let's, let's logic with that a bit. They snatched his body up. like They came and stole his body. That's a report they want to give out there. So on me this, Batman. you got 12 disciples who, previous to Jesus going to the cross, are a bunch of cowards. Like they're going to run and hide such they're not even coming to the tomb on Sunday morning. Like cowards, in hiding, afraid. Women are there, men's not there. But you're going to put the courage in those men... To go and snatch a body from the greatest fighting force in the world at that time. Like they're going to go Navy SEAL, Mission Impossible, Black Nighttime Ops. To get Jesus' body at expense of their own life. When they could have just defended Jesus a day before. Church, that makes no sense. Again, is that, does that have the greatest explanatory power? It, may, it has no explanatory power. Or let me, let me come to another one. Muslims believe, and lots of liberal scholars would say, well, he just swooned. They'll say the swoon theory. Like on the cross, Jesus just kind of like took a nap, swooned, and then like later when they put him in the tomb, he like woke up and then cross-fitted that rock out of the way and then walked to Galilee. All right, they beat him and scourged his back, ripping it open like he had a Viking blood eagle done on his back complete, his whole back was a running open wound, bleeding for a day on the cross. They pierced him. The people who executed him are professionals. They know a dead body. Matter of fact, if Jesus doesn't die on the cross, they could find themselves on a cross. Then they're going to pierce his hands and feet and stab him underneath the ribcage in the heart, and Jesus just going to walk that off. Like he didn't die. Then you're going to put him in a tomb and he has to crossfit a boulder and walk to Galilee. Like you're walking to Denver from here. So pause. Like, I went hiking this weekend, and my calves still hurt, all right? And I got a small cut, very small, insignificant. From the balcony, you could not even see this cut on my foot. And I'm thinking about taking the month off from walking. Right? Have you stubbed your toe before and been like, all right, well, that's Better call it a week on walking. We, you, you could catch your shin on a coffee table and, and complain about that for a week. But we're talking about a dude who was nailed with nine-inch nails to the cross, pierced in the heart, with his back completely ripped open, and we're like, oh yeah, that guy's got plenty of hydration to move a, a boulder and do a 30, 50, 60-mile hike up into the hills. That makes no sense. It does not have the greatest explanatory power, church. Do you hear me? So, here's what the word, I said, is curious. He said, come and see. And they saw where they had laid Jesus. In John, what's curious is that there's a word that is used throughout the whole New Testament when people see things. It's called blepo in Greek. It's like, I I see this, I see that. It's blepo. It's just a common word. But in this account, he uses the Greek word thoreo, which is where we get the idea of theorizing. Thoreo is an investigation word. Thoreo is a, it's a science word. It's that they were compelled by the angel to come there and to look at the facts, to look at the evidence. They thoreo, They lo- They examined every detail and tried to put together, they tried to Sherlock Holmes, what happened here? It wasn't that they just took a glance in the tomb. It's that they got there and they did the investigative, scientific work about what happened. They looked and they tried to figure out what best accounts for the facts that I'm staring—that are staring me in the face. What has the best explanatory power for these details? Now, I get it. We think that we're the most evolved people that have ever lived on the earth. We think that we're the pinnacle of humanity. And yet, I can take that cell phone away from some of you, and you ain't making it to your house. Right? You don't know how to make a cell phone. Right? None of us in here are just going to go home with some metal and just rig together an iPhone. Anybody? Right? You're not that crafty, are you, Colorado? We stand on the shoulders of people that came before us, what they contributed to human knowledge. And that's what we do here. We stand on people's shoulders. Do you realize that with even... With the ancient tools that they have, we have no idea how to reconstruct the pyramids in Egypt. You could take the best engineers on the earth, and with the manpower that they had, we don't know how to do what they did. But we're somehow better than those people? That's why you got to say, it was aliens, bro. (laughs) That's us admitting that we can't do it. That's the only thing that that says. We... We want to think that we are some sort of superior, scientific, enlightened person when it comes to this evidence, and that they're not. But look at what happens in verse um, 8, verse 11. Look at verse 11. But they, when they heard he was alive and they had been seen by her, they would not believe secondhand testimony. She had seen it, but when she comes and testifies to the disciples, it says they would not believe her. Verse 13, and when then they went back and told the rest, look at what your Bible says. But they did not believe them. We say, oh, well, ancient man believed in the kind of things like resurrection and these types of things. Did they? Because the Bible says that when the women come back and they tell it to them, we know that some of the disciples ran, and some of the disciples didn't even, they just didn't believe. The ancient man, just like us, understood that when people died, they died. That's like the end. Every bit as much evidentialist as we are. And they're looking at this secondhand account of the women, and they're saying, Fuck, nah, I'm out. Do you understand that for these disciples, it's not until Jesus, like uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says, appears to the disciples themselves, until they come to Thomas, and he says to Thomas, put your hand in my side, that Thomas doesn't believe the patron saint of science, doubting Thomas. That until Thomas experiences it firsthand, he's out. But Jesus doesn't want... He says, Thomas, don't be unbelieving, but believe. Here's my nail prints. See me, touch me. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a hallucination. He compels them to look at the evidence and to meet him and to know him. I think this is curious because... I, I, do you know that after Jesus rose from the dead, within uh, a few hundred years, Christianity is going to take over uh, the majority of the Roman Empire? Over 50% of the Roman Empire is going to be Christian within, within 250 years of this, this occurrence right here. That they're going to go out and not only not be scared, but at risk and potential to lose their own lives. They're going to go preach this gospel. Which is a whole other question about what flips them from cowards to courageous, and they're going to take over the majority of the Roman Empire. But there's this historical fact that I found really fascinating, and I thought. So it's not until 150 years after this that Christianity is spreading all over the world that. Um, some wealthy people kind of come back to try to figure out where exactly was the tomb of Jesus. If you go there today, if you go to the slide, I'll show you a picture. I showed you this uh, last time. This is the garden tomb, which comes much later. This is like modern era guessing. And I said that this is likely not where Jesus was, but the great thing about this is this is the kind of tomb that we know that he would have been in. If you go to the other slide, um, this picture is the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. 150 years after this occurrence, this is the place that they best understood that Jesus was buried. His body was prepared and buried, and they built a massive church over there. And so whenever uh, Ronnie gives me the green light to lead an Israel trip, all right, no, uh, we're going to go visit this, all right? And we'll talk about this, but this is likely also not the spot. So here's the question. If the tomb of Jesus was so important for Christianity, why was nobody for the first 150 years visiting it? Let me give you a context. Millions of people visit Elvis's house. Like all the time. Like it's a holy site for some of them, right? Some of you are right now thinking, I could do that. All right? So think about this. We make holy sites out of anything. In this, and you're talking about someone who rose from the dead. And is going to, 150, the church has already taken over the Roman Empire but nobody cares about the tomb anymore. Here's why. If you have a kid that lives in your house right now, I heard this explained this way and I think it's just brilliant. If you have a kid that lives in your house right now, you, you, you look at their bedroom and you think, that place is a mess. It is not holy or sacred or awesome. It just smells like feet. All right? And you're, like, it, you just want them to clean it all the time and you don't think about it. But here's the thing. Some of y'all tell me the truth. Moms, when they go off to college, isn't there a few days there where you don't touch that room? Weeks, months, years? You leave it exactly, all the same posters on the wall, all the stuff, right? It kind of, It's not the same as when they're living in it, is it? And let's get a little heavier here. Do you know somebody who's ever lost a child before? That a lot of times that room becomes a shrine, and they change nothing in it. You know why? Because see, when the kid is still with you, you have the kid. The room doesn't matter. But when the kid goes to college, or God forbid you lose a kid, the room takes on all kinds of significance because you don't have them. See, you know why the Christians didn't care about the tomb and most Christians today care very little about Jesus' actual burial place? It's because we have Jesus. See, if you actually have Jesus right here today, that dirt over there in Israel, it's just not—it's just not holy. What's holy is having him. See, the early church—they had the resurrected Jesus in their midst, in their heart, in their life. That's just a—that's an empty. T- it's just rocks. I'd say this the same to you. A lot of times, churches and buildings and and things like that can become super sacred and all kinds of things can take all kind of elevated things because people don't actually have Jesus in their lives. Here's the deal. They would not believe without firsthand evidence. And I would say this too. I don't believe that you will ever believe the gospel and you will ever experience the resurrection in your heart unless Jesus firsthand reveals himself to you as well. I can sit up here and I can bark at you facts. I can give you history. I can talk about Greek words and give you all the textual evidence, historical, logical, here's the word, science that you want, all the knowledge that you want. But at the end of the day, unless the Holy Spirit does something to reveal the Son of God to you firsthand, you're just living off of your grandmama's faith. You're living off of the church's faith, but it will never be real to you. And so my... Beg, my plead with you today is that you would humble yourself, repent of your sins, and believe the gospel. That this evidence would be used and put in front of you, that you might be touched by the Holy Spirit, and that He would change you. This is why in this church we don't just preach, we pray. Because all the preaching in the world does zero good Unless we pray and see the Holy Spirit take what is preached and apply it to hearts in a first-hand revealed kind of way. And so I just want you to know, if you're in here, I'm praying for you to not let this be a seed that just bounces like a seed hitting a stony soil, but that it would hit you and that you would know Him and the power of His resurrection. That's my heart. Can I pray for you? family if you're here and maybe there's a ton of questions that are swirling around for you but maybe Jesus is compelling you to this one question do you know him do you know him not does your grandma your mom your dad your brother sister your friend know him do you know him have you believed from a first-hand account because of your encounter with Christ who died on the cross for your sins according to Scripture, was buried and raised from the grave according to Scripture? Do you know Him? Because without answering that question first, all other questions are just going to be a distraction. If you don't, Repent of your sins, turn to Christ and believe the gospel. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. I'm going to pray for you. If you've never made that decision, I want to pray with all my heart for you to know him today. And if you're a Christian here, I want to invite you to look into the empty tomb again. Know that your sins have been buried there and there's a new life, a new creation That God's called you on mission to spread all over the world. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that heaven would rush in here into the hearts of anyone who has not believed your gospel. That heaven would come in the person and work of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Revealing Christ that their faith might be firsthand. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that have gathered here today. I pray that through your word, their spiritual eyes would look inside the empty tomb and know all of their failures have been buried. All of their sin has been cast as far as the east or the west. And that there's a new life and a new creation to spread all over the earth. God, would you make this church on mission and on fire for you? God, this is your church. This is your people. Do what pleases you. We pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen. Would you stand and sing with us? Tonight, six o'clock. Otherwise, now for a benediction. May you be so buried with Christ that you are raised to live with him forevermore. Amen. You guys have a great week. We'll see you tonight.